Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, It's currently April 19th when I'm recording this intro, sitting here uh, in the morning with a nice cup of jumping bean coffee in front of me. Um, I spent my winter doing a lot of these uh, kind of banking them up. So, uh, and now I'm recording the intro. It's probably a month later uh, after recording the last one, and I'm I'm going to start to release these pretty soon. Of course, with with Sandy that you you've seen over the last few weeks, and now with Des today, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, so as for me, things are going okay right now. Uh, I'm actually uh, meeting up with an artist in about a half an hour to start work on a second record for them, which I'm super stoked about. Certainly more on that later, but we've got some uh, some pretty fun ideas that we're both excited about for for a bit of a new direction for them, um, using some pretty different sounds for them and a little bit for me, which is kind of what keeps me going in the studio. You know, the idea of of trying new things and and you know pushing it pushing it a bit in a different direction. It's so funny as an artist too, because it always feels like. Um, the, the, the biggest change to you, like a giant sea change, uh, at best will make people be like, wow, that's a bit of a different direction for you. You know, it always feels so fundamentally huge to you as the artist. And then, um, it's sort of like people probably pick up on maybe 10% of that most of the time, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, anyway, that's kind of what's up with me, at least for right now. Des Walsh is my guest this week. Des Walsh, uh, the the poet, the writer, um, the actor, uh, a guy that I worked with on a film of mine called Keystone. He plays the main character, and I just love Des. I've uh, I've since hung out with him a few times at his place, both in St. John's and uh, and also in New Bonaventure, and uh, he's he's a true artist. I think he's also incredibly lazy. According to him, literally in this interview, he he calls himself that. He's he's quite a modest fellow. You certainly never imagined him being lazy if you looked at his collective catalog of work. This is just part one um, with part two coming next week. So here we go. My conversation with Des Walsh. I was born in St. John's. Uh... And then when I was about uh, eight, I guess it was, uh, we moved to Jersey Side in Placentia Bay. My mother was from Pine Ford, uh, which is near there. Her, her, her parents were the, um, were the lighthouse keepers. And uh, my father was from Bellevue. But they ended up um, uh, buying a, a nightclub with my mother's brother and uh, my uncle and uh, my aunt. So we ended up moving out to Jerseyside, and I spent my early years out there and uh, loved it, loved it. And then we moved back into St. John's when I was, I guess, around 13. So I got moved around a bit from, uh, you know, Christian Brothers to Mercy Convent Nuns to Jesuits. and you know, so I was, How was that? 
<clears throat> well, you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's, uh, you know, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any uh, uh, real scars from it. Um, and nothing, you know, I was never, I was never, fortunately, I was never abused or anything, but uh, it was still hard to adjust to different schools and different, especially, you know, moving from St. John's out to Jerseyside when I was young, of course, you were the, you know, the townie coming out around the bay, and of course, there was lots of, you know, not lots, but there were several, there were altercations with, with kids my own age, and then, you know, and years later, you move from Jerseyside back into St. John's. It was just the reverse. <laughs> you you know, got to you see were, both sides you of were, it. That's right. You were to Bayman moving into St. John's. And I went to St. Pius uh, the 10th, I think the first year it opened. And uh, I didn't adjust to being back in St. John's, to tell you the truth. I, uh, I always much preferred to be, um, you know, I loved being out around the Jerseyside and and subsequent to that, some years then later, I, I ended up buying a house um, in New Bonaventure, Trinity Bay, where I spend most of my time and where I'm most comfortable. And it's a great place to work out of as well. I've been there. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's right on, right on, looks out right out over the water. And the what is it that you love so much about that? Like you said, you you didn't adjust to town life so much. What is it to you? I just love the space. I love the, well, I love the water. And I love the I love the space, and I just love uh, when I'm you know have some kind of strength and energy and vision to work and write. It's a it's a great place to do it, right? And uh, I find that uh, it's not so much that like I'm not one of these people who say oh it inspires me to I, you know I don't know what inspires me to write and to work, but it's it's just if I'm going to do it, I'd rather be there doing it than anywhere else, right? You talked about you just said. The, the strength and the energy to write. I'm interested in hearing a bit more about that, how you kind of conceptualize. I think I know what you mean, but I'd like to hear it from you. Um, I, I find it exhausting. I, I've, I've always found it the hardest thing that I've ever done. Uh, I mean, I know pick and shovel work is hard, and I've done that. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, it isn't any harder than a, you know, a deadline, you know, writing a script, uh, uh, for a, a poem to me, I, I never know when a poem is finished. I, I just have no idea. I, I keep trying to, you know, work it. And if I get into this kind of mode of saying, okay, I'm going to try and work on some things and get a new collection of poems together, I, I find it exhausting trying to trying to deal with it. And uh, and there's times I get you know, I get really backed up, and I just say, holy Christ, I got, you know, maybe I've had nothing to say all along anyway. But I get to the point, maybe that's because if I'm getting older, I don't know, but I, then I think, well, in actual fact, I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> there's only, you know, there's only so many ways you can, um, you know, approach something. And I, sometimes I feel like I've been, I've been writing the same poem all my life. You know? Right. That's a sentiment <laughs> I've heard, though, consistently. That's, yeah. that's a, that's a, you know, right back to... Shakespeare talking about formats of, you know, people analyzing that and going, there, there's only this many formats and it's just iterations on that format. Yeah, but yeah. But it feels dressed up completely differently. It yeah, feels it's different. just, it's just a, it's a tough, tough, tough uh, racket, I, I find. And uh, I think some people, I think it comes probably more naturally than, than, than others. Uh, it was never natural with me. I never, uh, you know, I had no sort of formal training with any. I've, I've only really, I got two weeks of grade 10 and I quit school. So I, you know, that was it. And, and uh, so everything I did learn about writing was, I guess, self-taught. And maybe that, maybe that shows. But I read a lot. 
when I was when I was younger, in particular, I, I read, 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 read so much. And, uh, you know, and I just can't right now. I read uh, I read uh, spy novels. You know, right? I, I can't read Kierkegaard anymore. I can't read. You know, why not? I just I you know. I just can't. Uh, the, the the brain won't let me go, and that uh, maybe there isn't. Uh, you know, the brain is. There's not any room left in there to absorb. <laughs> you know, some of those big dense uh, uh, novels and writers anymore. Yeah. So now, I, you know, the brain is just functions enough to you know deal with crime <laughs> novels. <laughs> I remember in Dylan's biography, he talks about. Um, I remember thinking of it at the time as sounding like a version of the Robert Johnson uh, Soul to Soul to the Devil, which was probably realistically like he went off for a while and practiced a lot. You right. Know? Uh, but like there was a period with Dylan where I can't remember the details specifically, but he was somewhere in like a family house and basically it read like he went inside and didn't come out for two years and all he did was lay in a bed and read books and it was this crazy library of of the classics, you right. know, and then suddenly he material. This was like pre Dylan even really getting his career going, and right. that it's often attributed to how he came out of the gate and said the things he said in the earliest songs, where people went, "Where did this come from?" Right, right. And it was right. like it was came from the filling up the bank with. Yeah, all yeah, that. yeah. Of course, this is great, you know. But also, there are other writers and people, people I know, and I, I truly admire and respect, but are. They're, you know, they're very disciplined, and I'm, I'm not disciplined at all. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of better with a gun pointed at me with, okay, you've got to finish this by, you know, especially with uh, scripts like film scripts and things like that. You know, you've got a deadline. You've, you've, got to, you've got to have it ready to go. But if I don't have a deadline, you know, I just soon drink brandy and uh, watch... Uh, you know, Liverpool, uh, my <laughs> soccer team, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. anything other than writing. Right. <clears throat> now I presume... A, but a little same with music. I mean, I've learned, um, you know, I play, you know, I play guitar, I play mandolin, I play fiddle, but I play none of it very well because uh, I, I learned enough to be able to play it, but that was it. Once I got that, oh, okay, that's enough. I don't have to practice. I don't have to, you know... You know, as a fiddler, you know, I've been playing the same tunes for thirty years. I haven't learned the new tune because that's that's <laughs> discipline, that's work, and I'm I'm terribly lazy. <laughs> now, obviously, it came from somewhere. You know, I mean, you're talking about being, <laughs> admittedly, lazy about about writing now, but and and how hard it is. But at some point, uh, there was a motivation to do it. There was a motivation to write those first poems. Where did, where did it come from? If you're lazy and it's really hard, well, why do it in the first place? I think, again, was uh, was reading. I remember um, it was classic. You know, I was a teenager. I was, I was in love. I thought this was it. And it wasn't working out, and I was, I was heartbroken. Mm. I'm just heartbroken. And I remember um, this house I was in, they had a... a this guy, I never heard of him before. This Irish poet, this guy, William Butler Yeats. What kind of a name is that? You know, I said. So I remember just opened the book. And the book, the, the poem was called Broken Dreams. And the very first line, I always remember it because I was so in love and so uh, heartbroken because it was, you know, as it was unrequited, it wasn't, you know. But the line of the poem was, there is gray in your hair. Young men no longer suddenly catch their breath as you are passing. 
Mm. And I said, sweet, merciful Jesus. All right. Mm-hmm. This is how I'll get you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just that whole strength of that image and the Yeats and then uh, Emily Dickinson, you know, the American poet. She yeah. was, uh, she's just, just brilliant. And uh, so then I just started reading an awful lot of poetry. Right. And uh, it was inspirational. And then at the time, of course, I was listening to a lot of this, this stuff. You know, I've listened to a lot of the airplane, you know, doors, you know. And when the Beatles really started to work on, you know, lyrical pieces, everything from, I guess, really kind of from rubber soul on, uh, I just started to really get a sense of the strength of, of words and language and literature. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, you know, I might have a voice. I might have something to say. And like many, I I, I didn't. I mean, some of my early work. I mean, it's 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 published as out there, but it's 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 freaking embarrassing. You know, if I could, if I won the lottery, that's what I would do. I'd try to find every copy of certain books, and, and I wouldn't care what I'd have to pay to get them back, <laughs> just so I could destroy them. Right. Uh, it wasn't until I guess uh, I, the seasonal bravery was a book I published, the book of poems. I think I was in, like nineteen eighty. And, you know, I was like anything, that, that had moments. There were, th- there were things in there that I'm still comfortable with. And, uh, but it's, it's still, you know, I'm still, still working, still working. And I'm not, I'm not really prolific. I'm, I'm not like some poets who've, you know, published everything they've written, you know. Um, but it's been, I don't know, like 12, 10, 12, 12, 12 years since my last book. And I've been working on a new collection for 12 years. Right. <laughs> Right, <laughs> so it's not until I feel that I'm comfortable enough with uh, with what I've got, but I love the computers now. I love the delete button. I love it, you know, because there's no one of these old scraps poems floating around belong to me. No, sir. I look at it. If it's not working. If I can't make it work, hit that delete button. It's gone. Interesting. Yeah. So you're willing to be merciless with it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I should have been more so with lots of stuff I published, <laughs> but uh, there it is. Nothing I can do with that now. Do you find you fall, uh, it sounds like you fall uh, more into, if you could divide it into very broad categories, you think of the poets like, uh, you know, you hear the, the infamous Leonard Cohen stories of taking six years to write a poem and, and going back to it uh, three months later, tweaking one word and then leaving it again, you know, like that sort of, uh, you know, versus like say a Bukowski or someone who's like, it does sound like he's more the uh, published everything. Yeah, yeah. The books yeah. are, you know, 600 poems and, and the quality at yeah. least in my opinion, varies greatly. And there's some gems in there, but... Oh, yeah, and there's, you know. a, there's a lot, and we're probably all like that, but you look at someone like uh, Irving Layton, you know, p- published practically everything he ever wrote, you know. And again, you know, the, the, the quality of some of those things, you know, that's the, for each person to, uh, to judge themselves. But uh, I just... Well, and again, Cohen, for me, I got introduced to Cohen not as a poet. I got intru- introduced to him as a, as a musician because I... I heard that the, the you know the very first Cohen album, and so that I think that was like sixty seven or was something like that sixty seven yeah, and I was uh, you know thirteen fourteen years old right and I I was just what did that do yeah it startled me it startled me I, again the power of of language and the so I you know I wasn't very popular at place because I'd be going around to parties where everyone was listening to you know all this <laughs> and I'd come in with my 
Cohen records. <laughs> I feel like that's still the same now, even yeah. though he's now truly an icon. I yeah, think yeah. that if you went to a party tonight in downtown St. John's on a Saturday night and said, guess what we're all doing? Yeah. People would be Well, I, upset. you know, I was in Montreal. This was years ago. I was doing readings. I, 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 I'm not sure if this was a book tour I was on. Or I was reading, there was something, I think it was the Canadian Council of Teachers of English conference, and I was there as a poet to give a reading. And of course, I got, you know, a few jars of me that night, and I had the hotel room there. <laughs> oh, took the phone book out, and I phoned every L. Cohen in the book. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. So there was Leonard's, of course, but then it was just L's, you know. So yeah. there were Laurie Cohen's that I called up. There were Leslie Cohen's. There was... And, uh, you know, I, I, I pissed a lot of people off looking for Leonard, you know. Wow. Well, what, what were you going to say? Well, exactly. I was foolish, you know. Hi, Leonard. I'm, you know, I'm a poet, too. I mean, it was just, it was so ridiculous, you know, what you're, the, the drinking you and, the, and being young. And, and it was so ironic. It was several years after that. I was back in Montreal, and I was, um, I was um, a writer-in-residence thing at this Playwrights Workshop Montreal, the theater. Yeah. A group there, and I was staying right on on the plateau, a beautiful spot. It was a great uh, uh, Portuguese restaurant around the corner. When they thought I, they had this amazing salt fish, and and it was another little coffee shop. And I was in the coffee shop this day. I was sitting there, and the door opened. In he comes. I looked, and it was Leonard. I was gobsmacked. I never opened him out. <laughs> I never said a thing. He came in and got what he was getting, and. It was so bizarre when I was thinking that several years before I was drunk in a hotel room phone on every El Cone in the book. And That's incredible. I uh, I was at the BAMF Center last year, and uh, the producer in residence was uh, a guy named Howard Billerman, who has got a great catalog. He did the first Arcade Fire record. He right. was in that band briefly, and, and he did the choirs on the last Leonard Cohen record. Uh, he, he tracked them in Montreal. Well, And he told, uh, he told a couple of stories. Um, he, he told a story about, uh, getting a knock on the door some random afternoon at the studio and he opened the door and, and it was Leonard Cohen and he said, uh, you know, hi, are you Howard? And he said, yeah. And he said, yeah, hi, I, I'm Leonard. Is this a good time? If it's not, I can come back. And he, he, he <laughs> jokes to himself. He's like, imagine being Leonard Cohen, like this was, you know, right before, like the years yeah, leading yeah. up to his passing just a few years ago. Imagine just being like. I mean, I can come back if you're busy, you know, yeah, like, and, yeah. and Howard was joking about that. He was like, no, Leonard, I, I think I can make some time yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just a humble man start to finish. You know? Yeah. Well, it was great because we've been doing Feast of Cone here for years, as you know, that, uh, uh, you know, Vicky Hines organizes. And then when Cone, I guess he's, what was it, his last? I don't, anyway, I, uh, he, we got to go down at the, for a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. And after the rehearsal, he came to, to meet some of us. You know, oh, yeah. It was, it was wonderful. So I did get to meet him eventually. But, uh, geez, he's only a little mite of a fellow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's a, but again, he was, uh, he, was, um, he was a huge influence on me. I was, I'm very much of the earlier Cohen. I mean, he's great. Everything was great. But like, I think Sounds of Love and Hate is probably one of the most unheralded recordings of poetry ever i just right. think that album is absolutely freaking brilliant hmm. i love it love it love it let's use this as an example for something I, I want to talk about that you said earlier which was you were talking about your influences and reading these poets and then in the same breath you were talking about 
you know, The Doors and The Beatles when they got kind of more lyrically poetic. Obviously, Cohen being a record that was pivotal to you and hearing that. And you're talking about them in the same breath, which I always find to be an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. The classic poetry versus lyrics, how they are the same, how they're definitely not the same. Mm -hmm. What does all that mean to you? I just think whatever, you know, it's 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 the inspiration that you get. Like I get, uh, you know, there's so many artists like that. I can, like Lou Reed, you know, um, Tom Waits. You know, I just, uh, you know, Joni Mitchell. You know, I, I all these people have such uh, quality and depth in, in 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 a lot of their their music that I always found it was. Uh, it, it was it was it was inspiring and, and it drove me on to you know like no sir I got the, you know I can I got a I got a voice I can make something work and it um, and it and it drives you to create and that's that that's that's you know that's uh, and I found I had much more excitement than energy when I was younger I find the older I got I you know when I I start rereading things. I just holy shit, you know. That's just. I just find now more of a more of a struggle and harder to do. And I find that I don't get the same. The same energy that I would I would get from these recordings that were you know some some time ago, and I, I find that I. I'm, I'm looking more and more for places that I can get that same feeling of inspiration and energy that I got, you know, years ago from listening to songs of love and hate. Right, know? right. Is that is that a uh, a result of understanding things more like technique? Like, do you see it now and see the seams? Is that part of the problem? I think everyone develops a style, and that's that's very important. And I and I did, I did eventually develop a style, and I could, I felt that I had a voice that was that was mine, and that's very important for a, a poet. It was very important for a musician, songwriter. Earlier, it was very much a mishmash of stuff because I was, you know, I was I was trying trying to find that style. Hmm. And I think once you get it and you know that it's that it's kind of there, uh, you can you, you. For me, I got a little more comfortable in. I felt that okay, I'm I've developed that. Now what what do you do with it? Mm. You know, and I find that uh, I remember one time some years ago I did a. Uh, I don't say taught is not the right word, but when Bond Street uh, had the extension services there before the condominiums were put. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I sort of, uh, M, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Facilitated a, a writer's group, and poets in particular. <clears throat> you know, younger people who wanted to, to write. And I, um, what I did one evening as an exercise, I just took a bunch of poems, um, some really, you know, well-known poets uh, like Yeats, like Dylan Thomas, like Emily Dickinson. And then I, with some Newfoundland poets, but I didn't put uh, names on them, you know, so that the, the authorship was blank. Ah, yeah. And I just passed them around and said, okay, just rate rate them, you know, from one to five or whatever it was. And uh, it was really interesting. Um, and I didn't say anything that night. And I went back the next week and I did a bunch of different poems, but I, I put the author's name to them. The first week they picked... Uh, 
poem. I, I think I'm pretty sure if I remember this correctly, it was a poem by a, a friend of mine. And I think you're having on. It was Agnes Walsh. I think it was one of her poems. That was the one everyone liked the most. When I did the authorship poems, they all picked one by I don't know Dylan Thomas or something like that. Right. So it was just so interesting the the, the dynamics of that in the brain of how that works. Of, you know, with recognition of a name, as opposed to letting your heart. Tell you oh, so interesting what the, what the poem that resonates with you the best. Yes, right? I've thought about this with music for years. I thought, I mean, there are there are actual examples out there. Maybe you've seen these where it's like the guy from, you know, the 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 rated second or third best violin player in the world for some symphony is in New York to do Carnegie Hall, but they send him down into the subway to to busk. Right. Right? right, and like one guy stops briefly with a quizzical look on his face over the course of two whole hours. Right, playing, right, right. Or like, I mean, Jimmy Fallon did it in an over-the-top way with U two, where U two dressed in disguise and right. did a, a New York subway thing, and then and then over the course of it, broke off their disguise, and then suddenly by the end of that song, the place is blocked with people with their iPhones. You know, but it's yeah. like they had just played for half an hour. Yeah. You know, there is that fascinating thing of the disguise of art and how to, you know, how to how to see through all the things around it yeah. to the heart of yeah. what's actually going on. Yeah, and that again is that's great. That's a great discussion because that is an example of the fallacy of 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 contemporary art. You know, with 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 media now, how that you know, uh, you know, you look at back. back uh, just 50 years ago, you know, your 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 creativity was based on your work. That was it. It wasn't based on your freaking latest video. It wasn't based on the latest, you know, um, I was going to say review, but not so much that, but even, you know, it's just, it's just, it, the intensity, I think, was more to do with the work than it was with uh, how you, how you sold the work, mm. you know. Mm. I mean, Christ, I can't remember the guy, the poet, um, was it Bliss Carmen, the Canadian poet? I mean, he, he would do readings to, uh, you know, like auditoriums with 2,000 people. 2,000 people at a freaking poetry reading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you can get a dozen, you know, you, 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 you're, well, this is great. This is a good night. Hey, you got 12 people, you know. I think that's for almost any kind of art now. Yeah, like, yeah. to get 2,000 people for a music concert now can be a challenge. Yeah, you yeah. Know, let alone yeah. poetry or anything else, Yeah, you know. But you know, like when Dylan Thomas came over to America and you know from Wales again, like huge, big. Uh, it was it was a very much. Um, now, of course, it's changed because technology had made one thing, but the, the the kind of elite at the time too was very much that you wanted to be seen at these mm -hmm. things, right? But but nevertheless, they they would show up in in, in big numbers and. And you know, I've done I've done book tours. Uh, you know, I've published like five, I don't know, it was five or six books, uh, collections of poetry, and done book tours with them. <clears throat> you know, in some places you can get you know reasonable uh, audiences, and others, uh, you know, not 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 so. And right. Unless you combine things like the way the March Hare, when the March Hare was first created, right. by, You know, yeah. Rex Brown and Al Pittman. Um, you know, combining the music and the poetry and the readings and. I mean, we would uh, we would get big uh, big numbers for uh, you know the the, the Knights Columbus and Cornerbrook. You know, you'd, you'd have you'd have three hundred people there, right? You know, which was but it was the, it was that combination 
which was very successful how they did that, you know. And other uh, festivals since, of course, have taken that model and, and, and worked with it and made it very successful as well. The, you know, Writers at Woody Point is a, is a good example. And, uh, and Winter said, you know, when you mix, when you mix things up, but, uh, you know, to, to now to, uh, you know, go on the road, well, you know, yourself as a, as a, as a musician, you know, you, uh, you try and promote, do what you can and you get in these venues and, you know, there you are, it's just you and a guitar and, uh, good luck to you. you I know, know. <laughs> it's, it's a challenge and I, and there's, I mean, that's, that's a, it's a huge discussion of elements now that relates to some of the stuff we're talking about. You know, the the, you know, there's been a fascinating shift in in technology that I think a lot of people try to pin down with a, a black and white, you know, uh, approach, and and that's never the case. You know, I had a brief chat with Agnes the other day, uh, just sort of going out the door about this because she was we we're talking about some of the new music that's out, and she was really excited by it. She was like, you know, I've uh, I had no idea some of these bands were playing like this is amazing like the variety and it was very inspiring mm -hmm. to her as an outsider I said yeah it totally it totally is you know and the reason that that can happen is because technology has allowed bands to make some of these records that sound incredible in their bedrooms for free yeah and yeah. then unfortunately you didn't know about them up to now because technology has also meant that they were, were so inundated with noise that you couldn't find the bands that made this music that you're now potentially excited about. So what do we do with that? Yeah, no, exactly. And I find it really interesting too. In a place uh, like I mean, Saint John's is not, uh, you know, it's not it's not big. You know, it's obviously the biggest spot on the island. But in terms, of if you look at you know, capital size across North America, and you have just a, a few, very very small few places in Saint John's that have live music. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Black Sheep. Mm -hmm. Is one of them that's uh, you know should be freaking heralded for for keeping you know, but it's interesting. It's the same with the price of books. The price of, you'll still see people kind of go, well, geez, you know, the cover for that. You're paying the cover. You're paying this for the book. But Christ Almighty, I mean, I I worked as a musician too years ago, and I, mean, <laughs> I know people, friends now. They make the same amount of money now that I did when I was with. Tickle Arbor and right out 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, it's just unbelievable that people still complain about paying a cover. Yeah. When the musician's getting the same that I was getting 20 freaking years ago. You know? Absolutely. And people talk about books, you know. Gee, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I did a, uh, I did a, uh, I think it was uh, Love and Savagery, I believe. And I was at this thing called the Salon de Liva, and that's not very good French, but a big uh, uh, book uh, thing in Montreal. <clears throat> and they had me set up next to, uh, and I think it was Danny Gallivan, I believe, the hockey fella, you know. Mm -hmm. And he had a book on kind of his life and <laughs> my book poems. And at first, before we kind of were doing the signing thing, people were coming in around the little booth, right? And they were picking up books and, and I had a really beautiful cover on Love and Savage that Justin Hall, the photographer here, took stunning cover of one of Justin's pictures. And of course, that's what made them pick the book up. And when they opened it, like I was two feet, three feet away from them. When they opened it, she went to look at her husband or partner or something and said, oh, oh God, it's poetry. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I said, okay, this is going to go well. Oh, no. So about 50 minutes later, we had the big, uh, you know, the book signing thing. And they had two of us there. And this wasn't my publisher set this up. This was the, the book conference thing. Yeah. And here was Danny Gallivan. I'm pretty sure it was Danny Gallivan. You know, my life in hockey or something. The line was about like 50 people. <laughs> Back to back to back, this line, getting their book signed. And I was sat there, not a not one Christian oh, in front of me. It was hilarious. God. Hilarious. <laughs> now, I'm interested to know, now this might sound like a, a funny question to ask, but um, <laughs> let me contextualize it, because I was going to say, how did that make you feel? Well, obviously the answer is shitty. Uh, but, I mean, you know, in, in this age... Uh, you know, related to the sort of online world, you talked earlier about artists needing to market themselves, and that's all totally true. And and it's a topic I find interesting about how um, uh, how will I how will I phrase this? You know, since since an artist now is doing all of that more than ever, we're all living a little bit closer to the bone, maybe when it comes to uh, you know, there's no separation between. Uh, the art coming out and knowing exactly all the machinations, like every single one, like stuff that maybe a publisher in previous years would have hidden from you mm -hmm. about getting the gig, marketing the gig, how people are, how the promoters feeling about the gig, how the audience in this case, you know, might've reacted that gave you that anecdote, you know, how does that affect you going back to the drawing board for the next thing are you like oh god like i'm th just imagining that woman and like that that's some sort of representation of an audience like does that ever bleed in or are you able to completely compartmentalize the no I, I i it doesn't it doesn't affect me at all i mean i i, I find that uh, you know i love those stories because they're funny to me they are know? funny yeah, yeah and that's that's it it doesn't affect anything what i do it's, uh, if i'm if that was going to uh, you know sort of Put me in in a, in the in a back room of, of of not being able to work. Well, then I shouldn't have started in the first place. Right, right. So no, I don't. I don't at all. It just it just uh, you know I, I I did publish another book of poems. <laughs> that wasn't the end. Yeah, that no, wasn't the end. <laughs> but I but I do understand what you're saying, and that that can you know, and uh, it's it's just it, it I I think for people outside of the uh, of the world we inhabit. It's very hard for people to understand how tough it is. Um, I, I have a, a, a day job. I have a, 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 well, I shouldn't say a day job, a seasonal job as an editor with the, with the geological survey. Right. You know, I, I, I chase geologists around looking for a verb. You know, they'll have a paragraph describing a rock and not a verb to be seen. So I've been doing that for years. I don't know how I would have survived without it. Right. Because it's... Uh, tell, can you tell me about that? Because you actually told me the story of getting that job uh, at your house uh, when we were pre-proing for Keystone, I think. And uh, I thought it was really interesting. Just, I'd like to know a bit more context. I remember you talking about being at the ship. I was at the ship. And I, I was leaving. I came out of this would have been in the fall of 1985, somewhere like December, mm -hmm. early December. Mm -hmm. And I was leaving. And a friend of mine came in. And he's actually, he's a geologist. He, he's Paul Dean. And uh, 
He said, oh, geez, great. Come in and have a bit. And I was broke. Like, I was really broke. I had no money. I was living on uh, Gower Street, renting a room from a friend of mine in his house. And I said, no, Paul, I'm going to go on. But no, I said, Paul, tell you the truth, I, I can't. I don't, have, I don't have any money. And he said, no, no, come on, I'll, I'll get you a beer. And, uh, you know, and he was all, he's always been a very good friend. So, of course, he got me more than one. But then he told me about this um, this uh, this job that was coming up. Uh, they needed a, a copy editor for um, for the Department of Mines and Energy. It was called then, and I had just finished up not long before with Arts Information. It was a magazine that was funded by uh, by uh, provincial government, the Arts Council, I think, uh, where we were printing and publishing a little magazine on the arts in Newfoundland and Labrador. Mm-hmm. And I was the editor of that. So I said, well, shit, I'll, you know, what have I got to lose? You know, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I went in and uh, <laughs> there was three fellows there. Well, I didn't know, you know, and I certainly got to know afterwards, but uh, they were asking me about stuff. And and finally, I was getting a bit frustrated because they were asking me. It was kind of geology. I didn't, you know. And finally, this guy says, uh, have you heard of the Central Mineral Belt? I said, no, but I can goddamn well spell it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I said, look, folks, you know, I don't know what you're looking for. And, and anyway, we joked a bit and laughed. And anyway, uh, and I got the job. Right. So Honesty they all, is the best policy, apparently. Yeah, well, yeah, they always had yeah. a science editor. But uh, I then at that time, when I went to work, of course, there, also was the experience we were using... I mean, we were waxing it up. We were, you know, we were laying out flats, you know. Right. When you talk about bringing the camera ready, we were laying out the pages, and I was with a wax roller, uh, a reduction wheel to get the right size for the plates, for the photographs of the rocks, and and bringing it. And now it's all digital, but at that point, they didn't have anybody in there who had that experience, and I had that from uh, from working with, uh, with Arts Information. Mm-hmm. So I got that job, and, and I thought, well, that's it, you know, I'm laid off and they all said thanks and and the next year they call again you know we need to be able to come so i've been doing it ever since and for me it's like my own private canada council right you know, it it allows me then uh, to you know to work on the other things when i was uh, when i was working on uh, you know it, now it made for some long nights and days because when i was working on uh, i guess it was random patches i remember in particular I was working from 8.30 to 4.30. I'd come home, I'd work for two hours on Random Passage, have a bite of supper, go back to work, I'd work on Random Passage till, you know, sometimes 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know, get up at you. So I was working like, you know, 16-hour days. And uh, But when when <laughs> when the times are lean, it, it's been great. Because Thank God, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's what? seasonal, right? Like It's, it's not seasonal, a, yeah. no. I get yeah. laid off and I get, uh, you know, Gets good stamps, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I actually I actually enjoy it. Right, and it's uh, and I've worked with some great people in there, and I've uh, and they've been very uh, accommodating for lots of things. They all know that it's you know what I do outside of that, but it's uh, but I've been very lucky because I've I've been able. If I didn't have that, I I really don't know how I would have. Uh, I would have uh, survived it because I I have been very lucky with things like film projects. I've done I've done three: mm-hmm. uh, Boyce St. Vincent, um, Random Passage, and 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 Love and Savagery, the most recent. <clears throat> so obviously that's and that's writing them. That's writing the yeah. scripts. 
Because you're also an actor. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, well, <laughs> to a degree. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, and, and film work, uh, writing, is, is a good gig. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it, it, it pays well. There's no question of that. I mean, how, I, how did that develop from the poetry writing? I mean, I guess that was what was happening. And the musician, uh, uh, like the, the, the work you were doing as a musician, that was happening up to the point that you began to write scripts? Like, tell <clears> me about that. I, I I got to know some people through uh, through NIFCO years ago, and I, I became very good friends of almost Mike Jones, who who sadly left us, uh, you know, just last year. And uh, through them, I guess how it was odd. There was a, a film that was been done based on the Tamil refugees that landed down in St. Shots some years ago, and, and it was this guy. I didn't know him at the time. He was coming from the NFB. John Smith and the director, and then they they said that you know they're looking for uh, people to. And it was all an improv film. There was no script. So I went and auditioned for it and got the part and became very close friends subsequent that with John. In actual fact, when I went to Montreal on a book tour, you know I was over to their house with him and his wife Cynthia having supper. And it was all great. Mm-hmm. So I was there in Montreal, and he said, um, "He said, look, we're you know we're gonna we really think we want to do something with the story on Mount Cashel. Mm-hmm. I said, Great. He said, we want your help. <coughs> I said, fabulous. I'll do what I can. You know, research or you know. He said, no, 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 no. We want you to write it with us. And I said, oh Jesus, I've never, I've never written for you know. I don't know at that point if I'd even written a, a play. I don't think I. Yes, I had written one, uh, Fish Wharf and Steamboat Mem, based on the Longshoremen's Union. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, that was it. In in I jumped and uh, and it was it was an experience, amazing experience because film is such a unlike a poetry. It's very you know that's it. It's you and the page. Mm-hmm. Film is uh, you know <laughs> there's there's fifty people involved from uh, producers and you know the directors and the 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 funniest thing with this was, of course, it was so close to home for people that, of course, the the insurers had to look at everything, and uh, we had a working title of Boys Mount Cashel, and they said, of course, you can't you can't call it that, you know, you, know, you just can't. And I was working on it this day, and my brother Vince walked in the house, just stopped in for a visit. That's how it became the Boys of St. Vincent, huh. just like that. And actual fact, the author of the music, <clears throat> I had characters' names that were very familiar to hear. And one of the um, uh, lawyers came back and said, "No, you got to, you can't use that name because there was an actual, there was a Christian brother at Mount Cashel, you know, five years previous to that." And I said, "Holy shit!" And I had this um, quite an extensive collection of Irish traditional music, and I also had the book, the family names in Newfoundland. So how all these, uh, like the names of the people in the Boy St. Vincent, like there's Reeves and Lunnies, and what it is is that I what I, I look at it, like Ed Reeve was this fiddler from, I think from Sligo, maybe he was living in, but I, then I'd open up the, the book, the family name's Newfoundland, no sir, no Reeves Newfoundland. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the kid's name, the surname was Lunny, and it was Donald Lunny from from the Bothy Band, right, right. From, yeah. and Planksty, and uh, and I'd look up the family names, Newfoundland, Looney, no, no Looney's. So that's how all the names got picked in the voice of Vincent from Irish musicians. And, 
albums that were in my shelf. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right on. What, what was, was there any moments during that initial script that you're, you know, cause I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I worked on a script for a short film, even just the format was daunting, right? Where you're just like, just literally the format of what's on the page. Like it's so counterintuitive to anything you've done before. If you're a writer, it's just its own thing, you know? Was there- it was frightening. It yeah. was absolutely frightening. Now I work with uh, John Smith and Sam Grana, who were both very experienced filmmakers with film boards. So they, they, they had lots of, uh, uh, lots of support for me and lots of, lots of direction on how to go about it. I, it was just a whole new thing for me. And I, but it was a really, 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 really tough film to work on. Emotionally, it was uh, very hard, of very course. hard. See, I went to the Christian Brothers and I had no issues. Uh, you know, I was lucky, uh, you know, but the thing was with me, when I left and went home, I went home. Mm. to a very, I grew up in a very, very, very caring, caring, loving family with a wonderful mother and father. Mm -hmm. Those kids that I all went to school with, they went back to the orphanage. Right. Quite a difference. Mm. Quite a difference, you know. And, and you know, I know this is a little off topic, but it still just pisses me off so much that, Yes, some of those brothers did get charged, and, and rightfully so, and, and sentenced, and rightfully so. But it's the pricks that were, you know, in the police department, the pricks that were in government, you know, who all knew this was going on, who have just walked freely and clearly, you yeah. know, with no, uh, no, not even their names smudged, you know. Yeah, it was completely systemic, eh? Oh, my Christ, you know. I mean, uh, you know. I mean, I, you know, people like Alex Hickman, you know, the, you know, the judge and the, the, the minister at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I'd heard stories about him that, you know, he knew nothing, right? And I'd heard stories that, like, he knew when he was in the department, he knew when you went to have a piss. Mm. You know, so, and yet he knew nothing about this. And same with Lawler, you know. And, I mean, they're, you know, I'm sad for the families that these people have passed on, but I'm not sad that they weren't, you know, Oh, it's horrific. I mean, Lawler said, uh, you know, you had, what did he say? He couldn't remember because he had prostate surgery. The fuck does that have to do with any memory? Nothing. Right, right. So anyway, that's, that's really off. But I just, uh, when I look at how those, uh, those, uh, those kids were treated and how they were just left and hung out to dry and, you know, just the way the goddamn system works. It's just nothing Nothing was done. They were just... Uh, do you think that the film uh, ended up contributing to a better public understanding? Like, where do you where do you see the film now, looking back, fitting into all that? I think, I think it was very important. I think it was very important. I think what it did to, you know, open up a lot of, a lot of that... Uh, I mean, it opened up a lot of wounds, and, of course, there was every attempt to try and stop it. Uh, you know, we were getting... Things from lawyers to this, and they were going to close it and not let us hear it, and so it was a big legal struggle with it. Mm. But it kind of did open up uh, some floodgates for sure, because once it did air, um, you know, it became easier for people to uh, to talk about it, mm-hmm. easier for people to deal with it. But as, as a writer, it was just. Uh, I, I do remember my, I think, I think it was my daughter or my son. I can't remember what I was working this day and came in. I go, I didn't realize, but there was like, there was 
you know, Daddy, you are right. <laughs> like, fuck, I, mean, I know this sounds a bit, yeah, when you think of what happened to the kids in the orphanage. But I was really like watering up, just writing this scene. It was just, right. And, uh, you know, I, that, and then that's the power of, of, of some of that stuff, you know, that, uh, that films like that, that, uh, you know, it was, it was really well done. I mean, from, I mean, from the director, um, John Smith, and then the performances uh, by lots of uh, people here, local actors who are, again, sadly not with us, uh, Philip Dinn and Michael Wade. But um, Henry Cherney played, uh, you know, played the, played the lead. And I I think to this day it's the best role that he's ever he's ever done. It's wow. Just the, just, the, just the nature of the work and what it, what it, what it, what he brought to it was uh, was great, but I had you know I had I had threatening calls to the house. No way. Oh yeah, yeah. People saying that they knew where my kids went to school, and you know. Uh, well, I mean, you know, not to to make you keep talking about this, but I mean, what was what was the nature of that? Like, who's who's calling? Is this the the, the governmental side of things? I know you're not going to name names, but like, wh- no, no. What this was would, the nature of these? This would have just been irate. Catholics, you know. Okay, wow. And of course, me being, well, culturally Catholic, raised a Catholic, saying, that, look, I should know better. I should leave this alone, you know. And uh, I was, like, when they said that, <laughs> we know where your kids go to school. Oh, yeah. I, 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 well, I went ballistic, you know. I just said, you know, you know, I just fucking screaming in the phone and say, I'll fucking find you. I, yeah. I'll find you. Yeah. I'll rip your fucking throat out. You call this house again. But it was that kind of tension, you know, that kind of tension. And uh, and again, not to mention names, but friends that were, were doctors, you know, from, uh, of mine, friends of mine, you know, just didn't know if I should be at this, you know, better let sleeping dogs lie. And I was just like, sorry, man, you know. My father, who was, the most devout Catholic of anyone I've ever known never missed Sunday going to Mass. Never, you know. Uh, was in complete support of this of this script and this project. You know, because when it all started to unravel, he was as much in the blind as anyone. Yeah. <clears throat> but he knew the story had to be told. Yeah. And he said, if it was going to tell it, well, you tell it. Well, you know? he could, he could, I guess, separate the religion that he knew. Absolutely. From the situation that was happening, which... Yeah. To me, any rational person should be able to separate yep. those. You can't uh, ignore no, no, a, a crime, capital C, plain and simple, a crime. Yeah. With, you know. But again, you know, that, and that's the power of film and the power of, of, uh, of uh, you know, films based on events, you know, historical films. Uh, you know, you can, you can walk away with some pretty uh, almost, you know, life-changing, you know, Emotions uh, when right. you, when you see a film that can uh, I've had it with a with a with a couple of films and holy shit you know it's just like amazing you know the work and and I just that to me again is the power of of, of writing the power of of because uh, uh, sc- screenwriting is so different than the, the writing of a poem and it's so different than the writing of a play right and they're all such different you know I mean the 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 sort of path is the same. Right, you're on that same path, but uh, you know, it's all the 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 the, uh, the side paths, all the tributaries to go off the main path. Totally, is what makes it so uh, so challenging. 
And that's the end of part one of my conversation with Des Walsh. Tune in next week where we'll pick up right there and continue. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.